Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. Today I'm with Dr. Harish Lavu, who is the head of hepato pancreato biliary surgery at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Today we're going to talk about pancreatic cancer. Dr. Lavu, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I'm really happy to be here. So pancreatic cancer, what's the epidemiology? How is that changing in the United States? The incidence has been slightly increasing over the course of the last 10 years. It's about 12 per 100,000 people. You can think of it that each of us has about a 1% risk in our lifetime of getting pancreatic cancer. In America, there will be 50,000 cases diagnosed this year. And that's been sort of generally increasing at a slow rate, partly because of the drivers of pancreatic cancer, the risks. Age is probably the number one risk factor. It's a disease that affects folks in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Our average age patient with pancreatic cancer and a new diagnosis is almost 70 years. It's about 67 years. Wow. Is there anything that sets people up besides age? Is anything yeah. linked with it? The drivers lately of the increasing numbers are smoking, obesity. The majority of cases are what we call sporadic. We can't link it to a specific risk or something that someone did, but a family history of pancreatic cancer. Diabetes has a small increased risk associated with it. There's a disease called pancreatitis, inflammation of the pancreas, that increases the risk. And then in a small subset of patients, 3 to 5% of patients, they have a family history, familial pancreatic cancer. So I've heard it's close to being the second most fatal cancer in the United States. Is that true? Unfortunately, the way the numbers are trending by 2020, the projection is that it will be the second most fatal cancer. Well, as a primary care provider, I'm not surprised that it's fatal. I'm surprised it might be number two. And I was always kind of taught by the time you find someone has pancreatic cancer, it's kind of too late. Is that an old... I think some of that came about in the 40s and 50s before we had modern technology to diagnose these tumors. We're finding more and more patients get diagnosed at an earlier stage. And folks who are stage 1 and stage 2 have very treatable cancers. Even people with stage 3 cancer, which is a cancer that's involving the major blood vessels in the region, can be treated with chemotherapy and radiation, and many of them can get to surgery. And what we've seen with the latest chemotherapy drugs that are available, even patients with stage 4 disease are living longer and doing better. Through my career, a lot of times the person with pancreatic cancer is that person who presents with painless jaundice. And I'm sure you're still seeing those patients. But are other patients kind of finding out that diagnosis in different ways now? Yeah, I mean, the classic presentation, if you open a textbook, is painless jaundice, and that hasn't changed. We also see folks who have unexpected weight loss, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, steatorrhea, which generally presents as sort of abdominal bloating, gassy abdominal pain, and then bowel movements that float in the toilet bowl. Certainly, the things that go with jaundice, the scleral icterus, pale-colored stools, and then pruritus is a pretty common finding. So those are your sort of common symptoms. But what we're also seeing is that nowadays folks have CAT scans and MRIs for all sorts of different reasons, and we're picking up earlier tumors. We also have a much better understanding now of precancerous pancreatic lesions that can be treated before they turn into cancer, and that's been a big driver of pancreatic surgery in the last 10 or 15 years is the understanding of these diseases. 
So if I have that patient who's in the ER for some other reason, gets a CAT scan, has a pancreatic mass, as a primary care doctor, should I be ordering some, or any of the, the markers, are they any good? Should I be doing that? What should I be doing as a workup before I send them down to you? The traditional blood work would be your, your chemistry panel, CBC, coagulation profile, liver function test to get a sense of the biliary obstruction if there is any, amylase and lipase levels. And then the traditional tumor markers are CEA and CA199. So we get that set of blood work on all of our patients. In terms of how can we evaluate the patient, figure out what stage they are, and drive our treatment decisions, the single most effective test is what's called a pancreas protocol CAT scan, which is done with IV contrast in three phases, no contrast, a venous phase, a early arterial phase, and a late arterial phase. A good pancreas protocol scan, which is done with one or two millimeter cuts through the pancreas, allows us to identify the tumor, rule out metastatic disease, identify the association of the tumor with the visceral vessels and can help us with our planning, our assessment of the stage, and so on. So you're at a big university hospital in a big city in the United States. Can that CAT scan be gotten any town USA? It varies. It's highly variable. I've seen wonderful scans from outside hospitals, and then I've seen scans that aren't very good. The critical thing is the communication with the radiologist, even at an outside hospital, to say, we suspect there's a mass in the pancreas, and we need a pancreas protocol scan, and that can be done. If I have that patient with a mass, is the clock ticking at that point? Is there a need to get me to a center where someone does a lot of pancreatic surgery sooner, or should I be trying to do biopsies? Should I be trying to do a lot of that workup before I refer that patient on? My sense is that because the cases are so individual and the biopsies and things are invasive procedures, what we try to do is avoid procedures whenever possible. It can be difficult to get biopsies. If we meet a typical patient who has an obvious mass in the head of the pancreas with biliary obstruction, who's undergone biliary stenting, we don't need a biopsy per se. Because many times in almost half of the cases, the biopsies are not reliable. So the biopsy comes back showing no cancer, but there obviously is one. Guess what? The patient's still going to need to have it treated. My sense of it is, more often than not, it's better to get the patient to someone who treats a lot of pancreatic cancer early. So I certainly remember from medical school and being a resident, the Whipple yes. procedure. Is that still what you're doing? That's the number one most common procedure I do as a pancreatic surgeon. And that's the procedure to treat tumors that are located in the head of the pancreas, mm -hmm. the net process of the pancreatic neck. It's also the procedure for bile duct cancers and the distal bile duct, duodenal cancers, and cancers of the ampulla vater. So we call these together periampulary malignancies, and the Whipple procedure is the traditional procedure for that. Now, I remember historically, lots of people didn't survive yeah. that procedure. Yeah. Is that different now? You know, the evolution of the procedure is just a fascinating example of the advancement in medicine. When the procedure was devised in the 1930s and 1950s, it was fatal in nearly all cases. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we got into the 70s and 80s, it had been improved, but the mortality rate of surgery itself was almost 30%. So it was a very dangerous operation. You had a one in three chance of not making it. If you fast forward to 2017, we just had some data from our center comparing national data high volume centers. And 
in our Whipple patients, we had a 0% mortality rate over the last year, the, the reporting period. So it shows you the evolution of what we're doing technically with the surgery and more importantly with our post-operative care and the way that we manage. Because patients will have complications from surgery. It's the concept of rescuing patients from complications and getting them better. So we're very proud of our outcomes, but it's a work in progress. We're always trying to improve. So if you're a center that has a 0% mortality and the traditional was 30%, is that because you do nothing but hepatobiliary, well, that's, pancreatic that's part surgeries? Well, that's part of it. And we have surgeons, myself and my colleagues, who only do pancreatic surgery, bile duct surgery, and liver surgery. So that's a big part of it. It's also that we're at a center where we have wonderful gastroenterologists, radiologists, interventional radiologists, and oncologists. ICU doctors. So there are a lot of folks that go into the care of a single patient with a disease as complex as pancreatic cancer. Now, you mentioned chemotherapy. Are people being cured with chemotherapy? Or is it an adjuvant, palliative? Does it make that much of a difference? It makes a difference. Unfortunately, people are not being cured with chemotherapy alone. But you look at the newer agents and the combination therapies that are being used now, and what we're seeing is that patients with pancreatic cancer are living longer and longer, partly thanks to surgery, but primarily because of improvements in the adjuvant chemotherapy. And some of the biggest impact has been in patients with stage 4 disease, where they're doing much better on combination therapies. So people who have cancers in the head of the pancreas, I guess we used to figure them out eventually. But the people with the tumors in the tail of the pancreas, probably they grew a lot more quietly. Yes. You're not doing a Whipple, I would imagine, if it's the tail of the pancreas. Yes. What do you do yes. in those cases? That operation is called a distal pancreatectomy and splenectomy. In many cases, we can do that operation minimally invasively with the surgical robot or laparoscopically. That's always nice when that's a possibility. But the goal of the surgery is to remove the cancer. We remove the spleen as well because the lymph node basin that drains the body and tail of the pancreas empties close to the splenic hilum. So to do the proper cancer operation, we'll remove that. As a primary care doctor, if I have someone who's got a tumor in the tail of the pancreas and I'm referring them down for surgery, I should probably think about trying to vaccinate them if I could for some of the you know, it's encapsulated organs. It's interesting. What we do, we've been doing this for a decade, is that we have a distal pancreatectomy pathway where we will do the surgery and during their post-op stand, post-op day number four, we give them all the vaccines all in the hospital. One of the reasons for that is we want to be 100% sure that they've received every vaccine that they need and that we can have them on the appropriate booster schedule as well. We've never had a problem with it. so. And you're now seeing people living a long time with what yes. used to be an incurable disease. Yes. So I think one of the questions becomes, should someone travel? I think if you're living in any town USA... Right. Do you find that center of excellence for pancreatic cancer, and does it make a difference? Is it worth traveling to a bigger city a couple hours away to have surgery done by someone who's doing lots of these? The fact of the matter is it can be inconvenient to travel, obviously. It's costly. Many times you have to stay in a hotel. Parking costs. You're in the middle of a major city. We have patients who travel from all over the country to come and see us. The reason is the surgery itself is quite complex, and the recovery process takes a great deal of care. My view is for a directed major procedure like a Whipple operation, 
it is worth it to travel, to get it done, to recover well. And then most of the other therapy, the chemotherapy, the radiation therapy, the surveillance, the scans can be done close to home. How would I know if I have a patient who's going to be a candidate for a Whipple or a candidate for surgery on the tail of the pancreas? How would I know to tell that person, I need you to get in the car and drive three hours to Philadelphia, two hours to Philadelphia to see your right. team? Are there some things I should know ahead of time to say this person's probably not going to be a good operative candidate? Well, you know, it's interesting about that because we have operated on folks. My colleague, Dr. Yo, operated on a patient who was 100 years old. I've operated on a patient in the mid-90s. We've operated on folks with dialysis, people who have had HIV, all kinds of different things. So it's very difficult to figure out who is a good candidate and who isn't, meaning to rule someone out. So I'll give you an example of what we look for. We look at the patient's performance status much more than their age. Many of our healthiest patients are in their 80s, but we'll get a 60-year-old patient who may have early-onset dementia, may be wheelchair-bound, may have other diseases such as hepatic cirrhosis or things like that that dramatically increase the risks. It can be difficult to figure out who's going to be the right candidate or not, I think, on the outside. And so I do think a surgeon ought to be involved in making the decision. There was a study a few years ago that showed that patients with early stage, stage 1 and stage 2 pancreatic cancer, only 30% of them were undergoing surgical resection. 70% of them were never seeing a surgeon and never getting surgery. Part of that had to do with a little bit of the nihilism of the concept of pancreatic cancer. And when people hear about it, they still think the way they may have done 30 or 40 years ago, there's nothing that can be done. So my sense of it is that people ought to be sent to folks who take care of a lot of people with pancreatic cancer and let that process take place. How many centers of excellence for pancreatic cancer are there across the country? There are a number of them. In every region in the country, there's at least one or two great centers where people can undergo safe surgery and meet experts in pancreatic cancer care. Now, if I was somewhere in a place not close to Philadelphia, could a primary care doctor pick up the phone and call you or send some images? And Absolutely. Could, could you let me know ahead of time if it's worth making the trip? We do that all the time. What we will do is we'll hear about patients who may be some distance away. All we require are the records and the films to be FedExed. We'll look over the films and we'll call the patient, call the doctor, let them know what we see on the films what we think ought to be done in terms of further workup, whether they ought to undergo surgery or other forms of treatment. If it is something where they need surgery, we have a distance program where we will organize things ahead of time and have the patient come in for one trip. So it's really amazing. You've gone from being a surgeon for perhaps the most sad, bad outcome disorder to something that you can really save people's lives. That must be pretty exciting. It is very exciting, yeah. So what do you think is the biggest misconception for our audience about pancreatic cancer that you would want to impart as we finish up here? Well, you know, the biggest challenge we have is the difficulty in hearing those words. When a patient gets told they have pancreatic cancer, it's very difficult. And to keep their spirits up, to keep their hope up, to talk to them about the treatments that are available, encourage them to seek those out and get the treatments. That's the biggest challenge. That's what I spend most of my time doing when I meet patients in the office. And how about screening? Is there any kind of talks from national societies eventually to include pancreatic cancer in one of our cancers we screen for? There has been a lot of consideration of that. One of the difficulties with pancreatic cancer, as you know, because the pancreas is deep in the body, it's not easy to surveil. The testing is quite onerous, CT scans and MRIs. Studies have shown the yield would be quite low. 
But clearly there's a group of people who should be screened. These are the very high-risk people that I consider folks with two or more first-degree relatives with pancreatic cancer. They may have a familial risk. Diseases such as Pitts-Jaeger's disease, Gardner syndrome, people who are at higher risks for getting cancer, a familial melanoma disorder. So there are certain unique diseases that put you at higher risk. But really, familial pancreatic cancer is one of those things that we have been pushing for people to get surveilled. The surveillance includes things like MRI, MRCPs, CAT scans, and then endoscopic ultrasound procedures so the gastroenterologist can get a very good look at the entire pancreas. Well, Dr. LeVoux, thank you so much for being on the program today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.